0: Man, why does everyone have it so together and I'm the only one that doesn't know what they're doing? This is just straight vodka right now. (laughs) Skip the wine. Just kidding, it's peppermint tea. Um, All right, so I just just feel like I need to acknowledge that this is the hardest time slot of the conference. Right, I'm full of Lapita's tacos. And that's hard anyway on any, even any day, but it is raining outside. I asked Dave, I was like, why are any of these people here? What are you doing? Why aren't you at home under the covers? I would be, um, but so I just, you know, we, we're all about grace here. We don't believe in a meritocracy, but between you and me, I think you get some extra points with Jesus for being here this afternoon. (laughs) Some minutes, you can send a little extra, it's like, yeah. All right, let's, we need help, let's pray. Thank you Lord that any desire we have for you has only been given because you desire us first and you delight in us. What our souls long for is you, whether we know it or not. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our very kind and gentle Savior, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, so I'm going to actually read out of the Bible I'm not just trying to prove the Baptist wrong right now. <clears throat> Though he didn't read out of the Bible. <laughs> There's, we have no evidence he even has a Bible. <laughs> but I, so I'm gonna read. Um, this is gonna be a passage very familiar to you. And um, this is a maybe a slightly different translation. I'm, to be totally honest, don't know what translation this is. It's a, it's a, one for kids' Bibles, but I use it a lot because it makes things new to my ears that I've heard a lot. So um, this is Matthew 11:28 through 30. And I'm just old enough that I need readers now and didn't bring them, but. Then Jesus said, come to me, Okay, so this passage um, is so well known to many of us. We hear it a lot, and, and like any passage, when you hear it a lot, it's easy to ignore. Um, when I was in college, went to Wake Forest University in North Carolina, and in our um, in our like the I don't know, it's like the commons, like the the student rec center kind of thing, the place you like went to get pizza. Uh, on the second floor, this never-traveled hallway. There was an all-faith prayer chapel that I would go up to pray in because no one was ever there. And um, I, and in stained glass on the wall was this um, was this verse: "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy-laden." So two things about that. Number one, we won't even get into the fact that this is an all-faith prayer chapel with a quotation from Jesus at the front. So that's, that's a whole commentary on the possibility of all-faith chapels. But number two, um, I think that the easiest way to get us to ignore a verse is to just put it in stained glass, right? It just seems like the second you do, it's like crocheting it, it becomes, this thing that is sort of tidy, that there's not, it's like a, it's a truism, right? And any kind of, it becomes sentimental. It becomes like the, the gospel version of precious moments, I think, to some extent. And so, we can just miss how weird this verse is. How weird what Jesus is offering is. How surprising it would have been to his hearers, which it would have been very surprising. It was a weird image he used. This is, I'm like too tall, too short. So we're gonna, we'll just see. So let's just think, I just wanna sit with this verse a little bit today. So who is this to, first of all? It says, come to me all who are weary, Come to me all who carry heavy burdens. This language is those who are burdened, those who labor. Come to me those who work. It's famously like the weary, right? Weary is it here is talking about kind of a, soul's, a soul weariness. To be truly weary, right, is a state of the body and the soul. It's this deeply kind of spiritual and physical image together. We kind of know intuitively the difference. This isn't just tiredness, right? You can have a really good day's work, a day of creativity or production, and you sort of fall into your bed at night, and there's sort of a gratifying tiredness that comes from good work. We're kind of, we're made for good work, right? And so there's a gratifying tiredness that comes from that that's different than the burden of weariness. When the hardness, the difficulty, the brokenness, the disappointment of life kind of settles on us and it feels thick, it feels leaden, it feels heavy. The book of Ecclesiastes, which we talked about this morning, names this latter the weariness of the flesh, In verse 12, this kind of weariness of the flesh, the weariness that comes with desolation, with anxiety, with exhaustion. And I submit to you that these last few years have been wearying for us as individuals, but also as a culture, as a society, with a pandemic, with... um, violence that we have seen against George Floyd, racial violence, violence in the street with political fighting, with like, it feels like endless antics and theatrics from kind of the political class. And I didn't, I didn't know when I wrote this talk, and this is in it, that Dave was gonna talk about this, but burnout is at epidemic rates. And like you said this morning, we see it across um, all kinds, I mean, we certainly see it in the medical industry, which makes a lot of sense. We see it with pastors, but we see, um, there was, I think, the Times did a survey, and I think over 70% of parents um, said that they had, were experiencing parental burnout after the past few years. It just, for everything, stay-at-home moms, retirees, people are burned out. America is weary, we're languishing. And a lot of times our response to this is to kind of spend our nights doom scrolling and then wake up more anxious the next day, more weary than we were the night before, right? We kind of collapse in our weariness into activities, compulsion, addictions, neuroses, sin. Patterns of life that leave us actually more weary on the other side of that. We're thirsty and drinking salt water, right? So I just want to ask this morning to you if you look at your heart, are you feeling weary? Are you coming here weary? And I don't just mean because of the weather and the tacos, although in God's providence, this might be part of that too is an invitation to notice if you're weary. So if you are, if your answer was, I think so, or hell yes, or whatever you are in that, if so, you are the very one to whom Jesus says, come to me. That's good news. You're the one this is addressed to. It's not, he doesn't say, Come to me all who are perfectly put together, though, as we heard this morning, that doesn't really exist. Come to me those who are pious, the self-sufficient ones. He says, come to the weary. Those are the ones he directs this invitation to. He comes when we've given up on presenting ourselves as perfect when we're too tired to strive to present ourselves as perfect, he comes to the needy. If you feel weak, if you feel weary, you are the one whom Jesus calls. So if you feel weary, good. (laughs) I mean, I have compassion for you, I get it, but good because maybe you're getting to the end of relying on yourself. We're not um, the first people to think about this, right? Saint Isaac the Syrian, ancient saint, said blessed is the man who knows his own weakness because awareness of this becomes the foundation and the beginning of all that is good and beautiful. Blessed is the man who knows his own weakness. What a strange kind of blessedness that is, right? The place of of, of vulnerability of really recognizing your own weakness is deeply painful. But if we can embrace it, it is in some sense salvific, or it's rather kind of the raw material that God uses to bring us to the truth about who we are and who God is. So when we look at this passage, what does Jesus offer us if we're weary well the first thing he offers is rest right which makes a lot of sense for the weary so what does it mean to rest in Jesus to know that we don't have to perform for him to know that he isn't um, kind of a means to some other end that he's not like the path we take to make our life work out, as we've talked about, but he is the one that our souls long for. And we can kind of rest in his presence because he is enough for us. He is sufficient for us. So it's this invitation, rest in me. If you're weary, rest in me. I am enough, I can carry you. But then there's this like surprising twist that I wouldn't expect. So he offers rest, and then he offers a yoke, which is an instrument of work, not rest, which just seems to make no sense at all. Like, if it would have made more sense if he was like, come to me, I will give you rest. Take my warm blanket upon you, right? <laughs> Take my weighted blanket, my... Uh, a sensory deprivation tank (laughs) upon you, perhaps a bubble bath upon you, take my day off upon you, but he offers the weary rest and then a yoke, which is just confusing and would have been interesting to his listeners because it wasn't in stained glass yet. It was just a thing this person was saying. They had no idea what he was talking about. In the ancient Near East, uh, animals obviously had yokes, but also, at times, people would carry yokes on their neck and shoulders. To to carry particularly heavy loads, they would grasp chains or a rope to help them kind of pull a yoke. But only the very, very poorest would do this kind of difficult work. Taking on a yoke, that burden, there was, um, uh, there, was, there was an indication of low social class with this. So why does Jesus use this concept of a yoke here instead of some other sort of agent of rest? Well, a yoke represents rule or authority. Metaphorically, to take on a yoke means to submit to someone or to something to submit to someone's authority. And in this passage, Jesus is claiming authority and inviting us to go under his authority. That's interesting. Jesus sort of suggests here that all people are under a yoke, that it's not possible to not be yoked to something, that everyone you know and everyone I know is always yoked to something, to earn desires, to our own way, which can be a really heavy yoke, to our own addictions, to religious performance, to what's kind of fashionable or popular, what's trending on Twitter, to a political party, to our own success, to our pride. We're all yoked. It would seem to me that the weary should be unyoked altogether. That seems like the next passage, come to me all who are weary and I'll break you out of the yokes that hold you back, right? That, that seems like what it would be, that come to me all who are weary and you know I'll take away all your yokes and replace it with self-care. But that's not what he offers. He offers this, um, he, he doesn't offer autonomy, he doesn't offer yokelessness. I said something in the book about Jesus not being yoke free, and my second editor was like, it sounds like a, some sort of omelet, that, so he so took it out. But Jesus, Jesus comes with a yoke, right? But, though Jesus isn't interested in taking away yokes, He seems very interested in finding the right yoke, one that is easy, one that is light. And this is the only yoke that won't break you. Um, David Foster Wallace, who's amazing, um, in his graduation speech, talking about graduation speeches this morning from Kenyon College, some of you may have heard this, but I'm still gonna read it. He, this is a quote, from a a commencement speech he gave. He said, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. And he says, and the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some invaluable set of ethical principles is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every good story. The whole trick, he says, is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. David Foster Wallace here is saying, we are all yoked. But this is the only yoke that's bearable. This is the yoke that we're called to. It alone is easy and light. So the question is, why? Why is Jesus' yoke that he offers, offers here light? Is it light because he kind of promises things will go well for us? Or because like if we keep our side of things and our side of the deal and we're good boys and girls, as I talked about last night, that he promises to make our dreams come true, keep us from suffering, have our marriages and life work out, is the yoke light because he like promises that we will have children if we want them, or that our children will love us, or that we'll find a vocation we enjoy, or that we'll have like an endless sense of a (laughs) purpose-filled life, or that we'll be healthy, or that we'll be remembered when we die. He doesn't offer any such promise with his yoke. He calls us to an easy yoke, and then he also calls us to take up a cross. And I genuinely often don't understand this about Jesus. How can the same guy that calls us to an easy yoke call us to a burden of carrying a cross? Jesus' yoke is not lighter, he suggests here, because he promises ease or victory in the Christian life. So why, why is it lighter? How can Jesus promise rest and promise suffering at the same time? It's because his yoke isn't lighter because he'll deliver us from all difficulty. His yoke is lighter because Jesus promises to bear our burdens with us. His yoke is lighter because he promises to shoulder our own load. He bears our yoke. This is like the heart of the Christian life. The reason this is a light yoke is not because like, life isn't difficult with Jesus. It's a, it's an, I'm sorry, the reason this is an easy yoke is not because life is like a cakewalk with Jesus. It's because when we are yoked to Jesus, Jesus bears us. He bears our yoke. There's an older woman who I, I, will not say her name, but you would all know her, um, who's, I like highly respect, she's like a nationally known like Christian woman. And there's this kind of story, this is a little bit of a hard pivot, but that's fine. Um, and we were, we were hanging out, me and her and some other writers, and we were talking about um, uh, some books that we were like working on. And we brought up, someone suggested um, using language of spiritual practices in, one, in, one, in someone's book. And this woman who I like, deeply respect was like, I just don't like the language of spiritual practices or sacred practices. It's just, it just sounds so Pelagian to me. It's just really Pelagian. If anyone knows what that is, the Pelagian, he, he uh, thought we could, pers- he's not big on grace, let's say, who wouldn't be invited to speak at a mockingbird conference, I'll say that. Um, it's kind of like you can perfect yourself, right? So she says, you know, I don't really like the language of spiritual practices or sacred practices, it's real Pelagian. Well, my husband will tell you, if there's an elephant in the room, I have this, like, inability to not be like, Elephant! Um, I, like, can't not talk about it. Like, if there's a thing we're not supposed to talk about, that is 100% what I talk about. But, um, compulsively and nervously, I'm like, Elephant! 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 So be cool. Um, so, so, of course. So, all the, so, so we're sitting around talking about this. She's like, it's real Pelagian. And so I go, You know the subtitle of my first book is Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, right? It's like the actual language that she's using and we all know that except for her so I'm just gonna name that. Um, But she raises a good point, you know? Is, are the practices of faith kind of opposed to grace? Is, Is this like a heavy yoke is what I'm saying. Is it that Jesus gives us a light light yoke of sort of chilling out and then the church came in and gave us a heavy yoke which sometimes can happen but are the are the means of grace or prayer eucharist scripture heavy yokes it's possible that they are but i would also like to raise the idea that it's that the means of grace that prayer that the eucharist the baptism that the scriptures are kind of how we learn to take on the light yoke of Jesus and to let him bear us, to let him bear our whole lives. Dallas Willard talked about how grace is for forgiveness, but it is not only for forgiveness. Grace is also God's power and provision in our lives. So I think it's easy for us to think Grace is kind of for, for sinners, for messed up people, and then, you know, like, the, so the saints don't, like, need as much grace, right? So, like, so if you're, like, really good, if you're Mother Teresa, that you don't need as much grace as, like, a drunk in a slum or something. If you're, I don't know, whoever your, like, picture of that is, you know, Mother Teresa, Pope Francis, the Zoll family. (laughs) Whoever sort of your picture of like, of like the people who get it are, that they somehow need less grace. And it's, and Dallas Willard would, when he was teaching, he would ask people, you know, who, who needs more grace? And he would give, you know, like Jeffrey Dahmer and Mother Teresa, you know, he would give these Hitler or Princess Di, I don't know. And, um, And he would say to his class, saints burn grace like a 747 burns jet fuel at takeoff. That what propels a life of knowing Jesus is grace. And that some of what we wanna do is learn to burn this grace, to learn to just use it all up like a jet taking off because we expect there'll be more because we expect it's not gonna run out on us. Or if our engine sputters, that it's not gonna just disappear. Augustine, my favorite saint on grace, named my son after him, we call him Gus. Um, He was kind of the first guy to really, I think, and I'd love your thoughts on this, I didn't ask you before I said this, but I think Augustine was sort of the first guy to kind of help us suss out a low anthropology like what that really means and looks like. I mean, besides the Bible, which did it first. But, (laughs) Augustine kind of puts flesh on what it would look like to have a low anthropology. And he was amazing in understanding how this yoke and rest go together. Again and again in the Confessions, he uses this line, grant what you command and command what you will. This is how the yoke of Jesus and resting in God come together. It's God that grants the ability to take up a cross. It's God that grants the ability to do what he commands. It isn't our strong will or our good theology or our good ecclesiology or our good behavior. It is God who grants what God commands. And we need this kind of high trust in God if we are going to rest in God. If we are going to have a low anthropology, which I think is absolutely spot on and we desperately need as a culture and as a church, then we also need a high pneumatology. And what do I mean by that? That's a big word. I mean we need a high confidence in the Holy Spirit's work. We need very low confidence in our ability to perfect ourselves and clean ourselves up. And we're not gonna rest unless we really learn a low anthropology, unless we really let go of our ability to sort of clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable for God and other people. So to rest, we need a low anthropology. But we need a high confidence that the spirit of God is at work in the world and at work in our lives and that he's wooing us, that he's working even now, today, in us and in the world, transforming us, wooing us, weaning us off of our addiction to ourselves and self-worship and teaching us to rest. We need a high pneumatology, a sense that, as Rich Mullen says, that the spirit of God has come to shake us forward and shake us free. So here Jesus invites us to rest, and he offers us a yoke that is light. But he says one more thing, which always strikes me. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Actually, I don't, I don't know how much. I think we're fine on time. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this guy goes back to kind of this idea of authority. Jesus is our teacher. We learn from him. So weariness for me feels like the hardest time to learn, right? That's why this time slot is hard to preach in or teach in. It, it seems better that he would say, let the studious come and learn from me. Or the very brilliant, right? The... Intellectually thoughtful, the theolo- the theo- let the Theobros come to me, right? <laughs> Why is he called the weary? That seems like the last people that should be learning from him, right? But I want to suggest, contra the Theobros, that learning from Jesus is not simply attaining more information about Jesus, but it's learning to rest in him. It's learning to be part of his very life. It's learning to be under his authority, to be under his light yoke. In our bodies, in our physical bodies, we actually hold learning and rest together. This is true. We sort of, all throughout the day, whether you know it or not, we take in information. So I'm partly why my kids are so tired when they come home from school, they're just taking in information all day, all day. And so when we're awake, at every moment, we're sort of taking in information, and while we are asleep, the brain, literally, I don't, I'm i not a neurologist, but I read neurologists, and it sort of um, re- takes the information we've learned and repeats it again and again and again and again. Our brains, while we're sleeping, are sort of working through, repeating again and again this information without our control to integrate this into our thinking. We literally, we cannot learn without sleeping. So if you happen to fall asleep during my talk, you can be like, I was just studying, right? I was just integrating the information given to me. My brain was integrating the information. So we literally, we can't learn without resting. Biologically, I find this fascinating From a, like, as a metaphor for the spiritual life, but it's true biologically that we literally cannot learn without letting go, without ceasing to strive. This is a good thing to know for college students in finals. That when you stuff more and more and more and more. At some point, you cannot learn more unless you stop striving and rest. So... In discipleship, we take in all this information, and this is good, important information. We need to be catechized. We need to be taught the faith. But we integrate it into our lives through practices of faith, through resting in Jesus' presence, through prayer, through silence, through rest, through chilling out. We have to rest in Jesus and rest in his love for us in order to learn from him. Our souls are set up a lot like our bodies that we have to let go and rest in him to learn from him. Theophan the Recluse, which is one of the cooler saint names. (laughs) And is very cool. Theophan the Recluse, and he's a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest describe the work of silent prayer this way. He said, you must descend from your head to your heart. While you're still in your head, thoughts will be easily, will easily be, I'm sorry, help me, Lord. Will easily be subdued, but will always be whirling about like snow in winter or clouds of mosquitoes in summer. And I write in my, my book, Prayer in the Night, I say that these clouds of mosquitoes, my own kind of anger, resentment, neuroses, my fears and doubts and insecurities, my kind of unanswerable questions and deep exhaustion and weariness, they buzz about me, kind of all day. And only by sort of giving up on myself and nursing the grudges and the insecurities and the fears that I have, and sort of simply unimpressively sitting with God, weary and wordless. Can kind of the real work begin in my heart? Can I sort of be open to actually maybe learning something from Jesus? So learn the faith, study it. Study it vigorously. Know the Bible. We don't know the Bible. We don't know our tradition, largely. But then, and I can tell you this from actual experience, our hearts don't just kind of magically change to be faithful and gentle and kind. My husband and I were in seminary together. We were. Um, we were sort of soaking in the best of Christian thought. We were in seminary, we lived right by, we lived between Harvard and MIT. We were in this reformed, very thoughtful church. Every single elder in our church had a PhD. They were all like international scholars. We, had, we were like soaking up good theology. And we found that we were fighting like cats and dogs, right? that knowing all this good stuff about the faith did not suddenly make us faithful, gentle, kind, and meek. We needed more. We have to learn to sit before God and be transformed by him, to repent, to know him, to take up his light light yoke. We have to learn to rest, to take Jesus up on his offer. So lastly, I just want to have us look at this last thing. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble. I am gentle and humble in heart. How interesting that God himself is saying he is humble in heart and gentle. I wonder, do we see him like this? Do we see God as gentle to those with whom we disagree? Do we see God as gentle to those that we find most difficult to get along with? Is he humble in heart? Do we believe that he's gentle to us? When you imagine Jesus looking at you, is it with gentleness? Is it with love in his eyes? Or is he angry with you or annoyed? Is he out to get you? Is he telling you to do better? Is he kind of rolling his eyes and being like, don't be so dramatic? <laughs> is he out to get us? Is he out to own the libs? Or is he out to own the haters, the conservatives, the Trump voters? There's a dearth of gentleness and humility in our culture. This is, of course, particularly like, online, this is easy to see. I think we've made, we've made just like such a um, kind of sentimental notion of what it means to be prophetic in our culture. And the prophets, when you look at them, are truth tellers and they do call down power. But remember that it is also to the prophets that Jesus said, comfort, comfort my people. That the act of offering comfort is a prophetic, prophetic act. And I think we use the concept of being prophetic now to basically mean kind of being like an ass in the name of Jesus. <laughs> it is to tell the truth, but it is also to offer comfort. So can you find the savior who is gentle, who is humble, who promises to be kind and gentle to you? So if you are weary this morning if that resonated with you, do not believe that God is a gruff coach telling you to suck it up and do better. Do not believe that he sees you with disappointment. He loves you. And he offers you his yoke. He offers to bear the weight. Come and learn from him. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.